If you would, before we open Hebrews 10 together, would you pray with me before we do? God, we ask that uh, as we open your word, uh, that you would guide and you would teach us. And uh, I pray for each person here that we know that you've, uh, through your sovereignty, brought here this morning. And so as we open your eternal life-giving word, we pray that your spirit would move in this place, that you would apply the truths of your scripture to our hearts, that if there's areas that we need to be convicted that your spirit would move and convict us of sin if there's areas we need to be uh, encouraged that you would move and do that this morning but we pray most of all through all that we say and do this morning that we would see you more clearly that it would point us to your glory and what you've done for us through your son and that your name would be magnified we pray that you would move freely in this place and and just uh, uh, proclaim the glories uh, of your son and what you've done for us we pray all of it in jesus precious name amen uh, I was thinking uh, about the, the need at different times in our life to kind of stop and just, just see how we're doing, take stock in where we are. This starts very young in our life. I think this was coming to mind uh, this week because we just went through uh, uh, parent-teacher conferences for our kids at their school. Uh, you always do this kind of right after the first uh, nine weeks or so. They'll do that and they'll call you in and they'll let you know how the kids are doing and how they're doing in school and how they're doing uh, with their behavior and all that goes with that. And it's good to hear. You get feedback on where they are and maybe where they're excelling or where they're struggling. And so you know how to help and kind of come along with them. And so it's a good thing to do. We do that in all different ways. I can remember going uh, in high school and going to a basketball camp. I was loved basketball. And I remember going to a camp where they divide you up and you play all week and you play tons and tons and you do all this stuff. And you're assigned a coach. And at the end of the week, your coach would bring you a sheet and he would hand it to you. And it would say, uh, here's pluses, minuses, things you need to work on, drills you can do. And uh, it was a great way to grow, to actually get better. You were exposed to different players and different things. You saw where you were weak. It became very apparent. For me, the first day I went to basketball camp, I ran back on defense and I turned around. And the guy jumped over me, spread his legs and dunked over me. And uh, he went on to play in the NBA later, so it's not that bad. But... Uh, it was an eye-opening thing, like, hey, I could improve a lot, and, and some of the things that I need to prove on are never going to happen, right? Like, just not going to be. But you do that, you, it's good to take stock. It's good to measure yourself against, like in sports, against better players and get feedback on how to get better. We do that in the professional world. Uh, usually, a, a lot of companies will do uh, a yearly review. They'll bring you in and go, this is what we've seen this year. This is where you're excelling. This is what you need to work on. Uh, maybe if you're doing really well, uh, a raise comes with that at those different times. But we do this over and over in all different ways. I mention that because as we're going to read in Hebrews 10 this morning, you're going to see a really, really strong warning here in the first part of what we're looking at. A very strong warning. And I think what the author of Hebrews is doing, if we place this in the context of Hebrews, we've been spending a lot of time in Hebrews going back several months now. That here are people that are new believers in a world where they'll really be challenged by, by and for their faith. First century Christians, they're trying to figure out how do we move into being fully in Christ and what that looks like. There's pulls on them to go back to their Jewish roots and go back to temple worship. And it's telling us over and over not to do that. But one of the things they're facing is there's hard struggles coming in. People saying, this is crazy. Why are you walking this way? Why are you doing this? There's this... Uh, uh, desire for some to turn back and go back to the old way of doing things. 
And so Hebrews is telling us to uh, keep going, keep at it, keep looking to Christ. We said that over and over. We'd really summarize Hebrews well in that way of just saying Jesus is better than everything. And so as we get into this, there's this very strong warning to some that maybe have turned back, that maybe are going, I don't know about this. And so you get this really, really strong warning, and then you get this really uh, great encouragement in the second half that we're going to look at. And I think when you look at it and you look at the two together, it makes us kind of stop and take stock of where we are and the way that we see Christ and the way that we're cherishing him and what our relationship with him looks like. And it's a good exercise for us to go through. And so this morning, as we look at Hebrews 10, we're going to just simply look at it this first. What's the warning that's there? And who is it written to? Who's it talking about? What's the warning and who's it talking about? Secondly, we're going to talk about this great encouragement that's there and kind of who that's encouraging and what that looks like. And then lastly, we're just going to consider together, where are we? Where do you fall in this and how do we move forward? Right. So the the warning and then the encouragement and then where are we in the middle of that and how we move forward? And so let's just start right here with the warning that's here. Uh, This is a a difficult text in a lot of ways. I'll just be real honest with you. A lot of people argue over what's being said and what is it getting across here. And so look at verse 26 with me. For we, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Pretty serious, stern warning that's there. It's almost a little perplexing if you've been with us and you've been walking through Hebrews and you read what all is said in chapter 10. We've been saying over and over, God is gracious. Do you believe that? You're standing us by grace. It's all what Jesus has done. We get to right before this and we talk about drawing near to him with complete and total confidence and assurance. And then all of a sudden you get here and it says, if you go on sinning deliberately after receiving this knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. And you go, Wait, wait, what? That that doesn't really go with everything we've been saying, or it doesn't seem to on its face. What is it telling us here? And so it's led people to say, and this will come up, the theological debate. You pair what it says here in Hebrews 10 and what we looked at in Hebrews 6 a couple months ago. And what people will ask is, is, can a believer lose their salvation? Can you lose your salvation? Can you profess faith and, and be walking in Christ and then suddenly lose that? And so the question starts to come up when we look at that. Now, we took this in much greater detail two months ago in Hebrews 6. And so if you want a fuller treatment just of the idea in general, I'd tell you, go back and listen. It's August 30th. I looked it up this week. So almost just right at two months ago, we did this. So I'm not going to redo that whole sermon from two months ago. But just real briefly, I want to say this before we step in and look at this. Can you lose your salvation? And what I'm talking about is a regenerate believer. What the Bible says, they've gone from death to life, right? Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sin, but God being rich in mercy has caused you to become alive in Jesus. You've been regenerated. You've been made new. You're no longer dead. You're now alive. Can that person then lose their salvation? And the answer is an emphatic no. That's not what the Bible says. And I'm going to show you exactly why I feel like I can say that very emphatically that no, that's not the case. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 10. These are Jesus' words in John 10 and verse 26. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. 
My father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. That's Jesus' words. I don't lose one. No one can take them from my hand. They are mine. The father's given to me. I don't lose them. Romans 8. God inspires Paul to write in Romans 8 and he says this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren and these whom he predestined he also called and these he called he also justified and these whom he justified he also glorified what then shall we say to these things if god is for us who is against us he did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all how will he not also with him give freely us all things And so it's what theologians say is the unbreakable chain. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. He doesn't lose any. And so the beauty of the gospel of what God does is he comes in and he brings you from death to life. And he puts his stamp on you and he puts the spirit in you. And he says, I don't lose any. Paul says very similarly in Philippians, for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so let that stand over Hebrews 10 as we look at it. One of our number one rules as we interpret the Bible, let the clearer passage interpret the less clear passage. And so when we go, man, is is this saying we can lose our salvation? Well, Jesus says no. Right. So I'm going to go with Jesus. And then I'm going to look at what this says in light of what Jesus clearly says. So what is this talking about in Hebrews 10? Because it does seem that there's some hard things here. And it's hard as you read it and go, I don't know. I'm not sure about how that looks. And so look at what it says here. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment. And so just stop right there for a second. I want you to see the language that's used. If we go on deliberately sinning after having a knowledge of the truth. And so there's some debate on what exactly that means to have knowledge of the truth. Does that mean that you've come and you understand and you are saved and you've put your trust in Jesus? I would submit to you, I think it has more of a connotation given what we see in all of Scripture that you are aware of who he is, that you've heard the gospel proclaimed. You may have even said, yeah, that sounds pretty good. You may have even said, my, my get out of jail free card. All right, I like this idea of grace. Right? I, I've met a lot of people that would fall into that category, that would say just that, that they've received the knowledge of the truth. They, they cognitively understand it. It may even sound pretty good. But notice the way he couples it here. If you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, the picture is, yes, you've received it, but nothing's changed. You continue to sin. You continue to go the same way. Nothing in your life has changed at all. And so I think of uh, receiving the knowledge of truth. And this may not get at it completely, but it helps me to think this way. Maybe you say to me, uh, come over to my house on Friday. Come over for dinner on Friday. I say, great, let's do that. And you say, let me give you directions on how to get to my house because MapQuest won't get you there and it's not on the GPS, so I need to write you out directions. And you write me out a map and you write down some directions and you put it down and you go, here you go, this is how to get to my house. And I take it and I go, oh yeah, great. Glance at it, put it in my pocket, walk away, right? 
Friday, when I get in the car, I'll take it out and study it a little bit and figure out. I have received the knowledge of how to get to your house when you give me that paper. And I take it and I, I go, okay, yeah, got it. Right? But I don't really know how to get to your house. I've never really been to your house. Right? I wouldn't be able to get there without that paper and going back over that. And so it's, I, I have an idea. I see it. I would say this even goes a step further than maybe my example there. That we do know, we have heard, they came in, they proclaimed the gospel. The God of the universe wants to have a relationship, an intimate, close walk with you that you were made for. But you are separated from him by your sins. But now Jesus has taken your sin. He's become the sacrifice on your behalf that you can be restored to that relationship. And people can cognitively understand that without it ever affecting their heart. I had a neighbor in South Carolina named Rod that lived right next door to me. And we would have three and four hour long uh, theology discussions on my front lawn. I was in seminary at the time Rod had been to seminary. And we'd stand out there and we'd talk on all these different classes and all these different things. And he would pair it back. He would repeat back things I said. He'd say, oh, that's a beautiful picture. The idea that God would would come to us and he'd use language like the incarnation and Jesus laying down his life for us as a sacrifice, the beauty of the atonement. And then his next words would be, that's one way that God's revealed himself to us. And that's one religion that gets us to heaven. And that's beautiful in its own way. And you go, what? Right. He, he would be able to say those things. He understood them, but it had not taken root in his heart. And I think that's the picture that you begin to see here. There's a warning here, a strong warning of those that have grown up around Christian things. You've grown up in the church. You've heard it. If somebody says to you, who's Jesus? Well, he's the son of God. John three sixteen. God so came. I mean, God sent his son. Right. That whole picture that everybody immediately compare it back. Yeah, yeah, I got that. But it hasn't actually taken effect in your life. That yes, you can say those words. And he's saying, that's the picture that's here. There's some that have proclaimed faith. But if you look at their life, they go on rejecting Jesus as Lord of their life. That's the picture that's here. Because they says they go on sinning deliberately. A little later in verse 29, it'll talk about them spurning the Son of God. Or maybe it says in your translation, they have trampled the blood of the Son. That they've walked all over it. That yes, they're professing with their mouth, but their life says something radically, radically different. And so the picture that's here is a scary picture when we start to think of that, when we look at it that way. When people tell me, when I ask people, oftentimes when new people come into the church and they say we want to join and we want to be part, I say, tell me about when you became a believer. Tell me what your relationship with Jesus is like. And I hate to say there are times when people start to tell me, well, I went to this building for this many years. I go, okay, yeah, yeah, but tell me about Jesus in your life. Well, I was baptized when I was 12. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Tell me about Jesus in your life. What does Jesus mean to you? And I think the picture here is we can talk a lot about religious things, but we don't actually know Jesus. And I think the warning here is the person who maybe has said some of those things, has hung around the building for a long time, or maybe they've hung around the building for a while and then they said, I'm done with this. I think it has that connotation as well. But it says they go on deliberately sinning. And so I want us to think why it's so important that Jesus said, go make disciples. 
One of the things that sometimes comes up when we start to have those conversations is, well, I was 12 years old. I walked down the aisle and I prayed a prayer. Go, okay, great. What happened after that? What happened the next day when you got up and you started to walk with Jesus as Lord of your life? And it's like, I prayed a prayer. Right? I walked the aisle. I'm good. The Bible never tells you to pray a prayer and walk the aisle and then you're done. Jesus says, go make disciples. And we say this, I say this all the time. We talk about it frequently. Discipleship is bringing every area of your life under the lordship of Jesus. Now, no one becomes a Christian and immediately brings every area of their life under the lordship of Jesus. This is a process. So I says, go make disciples. And it continues to happen. And we continue to seek those out. Led by the Spirit, as revealed in God's word, we continue to come to obedience. But then there's this picture here of the one who may profess it with their mouth and then they live like they don't care about Jesus being Lord of their life at all. And he says, if that's the case, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment. It's a scary, scary warning here. It's a serious warning. He'll say at the end as he summarizes this whole thing. Right? He's going to talk them in an encouragement about those who are following Christ. And then he gets to the very end in verse 39 and he says, But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have had faith and preserve their souls. And so that picture of shrinking back, when you start to paint the picture of what this looks like, maybe you've said, yeah, I'm a Christian, or yeah, I belong to that church, or yeah, I'll walk the aisle. But then everything in your life looks contrary to what God calls us to. There's no discernible fruit in your life in any way. That you shrink back, which is a really good example in our culture right now today, because our culture says a lot of things that are in exact opposition to the Bible, and we can kind of shrink back and go, oh, I don't want to enter into that. What would people think of me if I hold to what Scripture says on this? So I'll just kind of sidestep that one. I think that's what shrinking back begins to look like. And so you see this picture here, and then it ends with this warning. By the way, just so we're clear as we look at this, I think the picture that we see here is the one who may have said, yeah, that sounds pretty good, but they've never been brought from death to life. They've never actually met the living God of the Bible and put their faith in Jesus. I've met a lot of people like that. I've had friends like that. They can tell you the words and they can say the right things. But when you ask them about how they love Jesus, it's kind of like, ah, I walk the aisle. I always go back to that. And so I think the picture is here is one who's not a believer that's not truly put their faith in Jesus. And the warning that's there is very, very serious. A fearful expectation of judgment. Or then he says in verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Or verse 39, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. A fearful expectation of judgment. Each one of us, every single person here is going to stand before God at some point. And you're either going to stand on your own righteousness, that is your own works, and how well you think you've done and what you've been a part of in your life, or you're going to stand on Jesus' righteousness and nothing else. And if you stand on your own, you don't know God because you're thinking that I can get in, I can make my way to a holy, perfect God by what I do. And that means you don't know who God is. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. 
and you'll be put away forever. That's the warning that's here. But if you're clinging to Christ and Him alone and His righteousness, there's a great encouragement here. Look at the second part of this. Start in verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partner with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And so he gives us the flip side of this, right? He gives us this very strong warning. You look hard at where your hope is and who the Lord of your life is and what that looks like. But then he says, look here at the other side of that. Those of you who were enlightened, that's the language he uses. After you were enlightened, you endured sufferings and hardships and people taking your stuff and all those things. And you were okay with it because of who Jesus is. That's very different than shrinking back, continuing on in the same way that you were, continuing to deliberately sin and go about your way. You've been changed. You see everything differently now. He says it's okay that people take your stuff. And these were people that were facing very real persecution. He says it's okay that they came and they grabbed and they took our stuff because we have a hope that is far greater than this. And so the picture that begins to emerge there, that when you come uh, to a saving relationship with the living God of the universe through what Jesus has done, it profoundly changes you. This is not a ho-hum Oh, yeah, yeah, I walked down an aisle. This is, I've met the God of the universe. I love the language that's used there, that's been enlightened. The, the, your heart has been come alive. It goes with the language that we see like in Hebrews 2 and, and Titus 3. You're dead, you're this, then God invades and He pumps life into you. He enlightens you, He brings you to life. He shines a light in and you see that I am a hopeless sinner desperately in need of a savior. There's nothing ho-hum about that. It's why when people go into villages in the Middle East and they say to people, you renounce Christ or we cut your head off. And they go, cut my head off. We're going to cut the heads of your children off if you don't renounce Jesus. Well, go ahead. Because I know my Savior. That's what he's talking about. That's the picture that's there. But I want you to be careful as we read through this and we look at it. Discipleship, this ongoing process of growing in obedience. It doesn't all happen at once. And so I don't want you to sit here and go, man, there's been times when somebody asked me about my faith and I shrank back and I didn't say anything. Oh no, maybe I'm not a believer. The the fact that you're being convicted of that, and you're going, I want to do that, I want to grasp that. I want to be used in those opportunities as evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. I think the picture that you see of going on sinning deliberately here is the person that doesn't even stop to think about it. They continue to do it deliberately, ongoing. And so the picture here, this encouragement that's here, is when you begin to see all that you have and all that you are in a very different light. Now that happens more and more fully as you draw close to God. It's an ongoing process. That's why Jesus said, make disciples. We're continuing to do that. But you're starting to see that in your life. He says in verse 
34, they accepted joyfully the plundering of their property. Verse 35, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. And so he says, as you come to faith, you start to see that there's so much more to life than just what you see around you. My stuff's not all that important anymore. It begins to see that there's a lot more to this than just me holding on to my stuff. It's why when we gather together as believers and John Tilly goes, hey, I have a friend in Germany and there's all these displaced people that need clothes because there's a harsh winter coming. And I can stand up last week and tell you that. And I get to my office on Monday and there's stacks of clothes there. There's people bringing them, people calling. I don't have any clothes, but I'll pay to ship them to them. Right. Joyfully will give my stuff away. Because I have a deeper and abiding hope. Because I want Jesus to be proclaimed more than I want to hold on to my stuff. And he says, be encouraged. And so I I tell you, when I go downstairs and I see a stack of clothes, I am encouraged. To yes. How else can we do this? What else does this look like that we can make him known, that we can continue to, to tell people, to show them what it li- looks like. Now be very careful in this. This is where it becomes difficult. We want to make it one thing when it's not that. It's not that you now have enough works and you've added them in that adds to your salvation. That you are saved by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. And when you see that, it changes the way you see all your stuff. It changes the way you see your life. And so what it's talking about here is evidence that you've actually met the holy living God and you see that it's all grace because that changes you. It's not, oh, no, I need to do some more stuff so that he accepts me. It's because he's accepted me. It's all his stuff. Those are two different things. And so it's pointing us to that. He's saying, be encouraged. Great is your reward. There's much more that comes out of this if you will just give all to him and make much of him in everything. And so he encourages us in that, that there's a fullness, a completeness of joy of giving your life away for God's glory. Sometimes we say, yes, he says, great is your reward. I'm going to do these things so I can get future reward. You actually get it right now in that you have a greater joy by living for God's glory than you do for yourself. There is future reward. There is that you get to spend eternity with Christ. You get to see Him and be known by Him. But there's also joy right now in living the way He's called you to live. The person who goes on sinning deliberately, rejecting God as the Lord of their life is often miserable. They've exchanged the deep and abiding joy for a temporary one. And it's hollow. And so he's calling us to something that's actually better now and in the future. Now, it might be difficult on the surface. It might even cost your life, as we see right now in the Middle East. But Jesus' name is proclaimed and God is glorified and there's nothing better than that. So the last part I want us to consider as we think about those two pictures. Two extremes in a lot of ways. Going on sinning deliberately. One who's giving up all their stuff. I don't care. You can have it all. So where do we fall in that? Maybe you read this and you hear this and you read 26 to 31 
And you see this very, very serious warning and it gives you pause. Maybe you read that and you go, oh God, please don't let that be me. Or maybe you read that and you go, maybe God is is revealing to you right now today that that is you. That his has been your life up to this point. That you've hung around the things of God, but that you don't know Jesus. Or maybe you read it and you get to the second part and the plundering of their property and giving it. And you go, yes, that's what I want to be. That's what God's remaking me to be right now. God, do that more and more and more fully. Or maybe you go, yes, your heart leaps at the opportunities to give and to serve others and to care for other people. I think the truth is, if we're really honest, we're probably somewhere in between the two. Especially in the culture that we live in. Probably the truth for a lot of us is that you do know Jesus. You do know him very personally and you love him and you know what he's done for you and you know that he's taken your sin and you want him to be Lord of your life, but you're just so busy with other things. He oftentimes gets crowded out with all the cares of this world and all the other things I've got going. And they take precedent over giving joyfully of all that I have and all that I am. And my guess is for a lot of us, we'd be right there in the middle. The idea of living a life on mission for the glory of God sounds wonderful and great, but it gets squeezed to the margins by all that we have going on. So how do we go forward? Wherever you are in those. If you're the first one today and you go, man, I've been around the church my whole life. But when I look back on my life, I don't see any change. I walked an aisle when I was 12, but nothing in my life has ever changed. I continue to sin deliberately. If I'm really honest, if that's you this morning and you say that. And you're being pricked in your heart about that. Do not turn away from that because that is conviction of the spirit moving in your life. Today is the day you change me. Come in and remake me from the inside out today. And so if that's you, don't leave here without talking to someone about that. And what you're going to hear is not let's pray a prayer and then go on your way. It's going to be, all right, we're going to disciple and we're going to go after this and we're going to step by step seek Jesus for the rest of our lives. If you haven't done that, don't leave without doing that. If you're not sure where to start, I would love nothing more than to sit down and read through the Gospel of John with you. Because it tells you so clearly who Jesus is. And what he wants for your life and what it looks like to give your life, to let him be the Lord of your life and follow him. I'd love nothing more than to do that with you. If you're a lady here and you have that, I will set you up with another lady that will walk straight through that with you. Let God's word stand above you. Let him define what that looks like. Start that today. Maybe you do say uh, you, you, you. Look more like the second half and say, yes, joyfully plundering of my property. Yes, I want to do that. I I would say to you, who are you discipling if that's you? Who in your life are you walking with and helping and stepping out with them? If you go, yes, it's all Jesus 
And you can take all my life and all my stuff. So my question to you would be, what time are you giving to your brothers and sisters that are younger in the faith? What time are you giving to your neighbors and your friends to point them more fully to Jesus? And how are you doing it? And if you're not sure, we want to help you. Desperately want to help you to do just that. To continue to walk this out until your last breath. But maybe you're the one that's kind of stuck in the middle. You go, yes, I believe it, but man, I'm so busy and I'm all these things. Well, I just point you right back to what we talked about last week. This is all one letter. The context all goes together. Right Right before he says this, he tells us, let us consider how to stir one another up to good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. If you go, I'm stuck, I'm not sure what it looks like, I'm not sure how to step into that, well then come and we're going to pair you up with some other people. Right? Because biblically we're supposed to be doing this together. None of us are supposed to be functioning on an island by ourselves. We're supposed to be walking this out together. And so if you don't know where to start, I tell you over and over, we have these community groups that meet and that's just the tip of the iceberg. It's a way to get connected with other people. It's not the only way, but it's a way that we're putting a lot of time and resources into to help you with that. And so begin to get involved with other people that we would stir one another up. Begin to pray that God would show you the areas of your life that you can create some more margin in. Maybe you are so busy with some things that you can actually step back from. Maybe the case is you're busy with a whole lot of good things that God's put right in front of you. That's great. How do you use those things in your life more intentionally for God's glory? It may not be changing anything. It just might be the way you see what you're doing. And so pray and ask God to show you what that looks like. How are you going to use me in the things that I have in front of me this week? How are you going to use me with my coworkers? How are you going to use me with my neighbors? How are you going to use me with the people that are right in front of you? Here's the incredible thing. And I'm fully convinced of this because I've seen it over and over. If you actually ask him, he's going to show you. He's going to open doors for that to happen. The sad truth is oftentimes we push him so to the margin we don't stop to ask him. Show me where you want me to go. Show me who you want me to talk to. Ask God to show you those things. Begin to pray for those areas, for those people he would bring into your life. Lastly, as we end, just an encouragement with all that. Wherever you are, an encouragement in all three of those. Look at verse 36. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And then verse 37. Yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith and he who shrinks back my soul has no pleasure in him. Because preach a whole sermon on in a little while. Jesus says it over and over. Peter says it. James says something very similar but using different language. But the idea is simply this. In the scope of eternity, the time that God has given you on this earth is that long in the scope of it. James says we're but a breath or a mist. Jesus talks between his first and second coming as a little while. In a little while you won't see me, in a little while you will. He says that over and over. So simply put, you have just a moment 
in time that you get to walk by faith for God's glory in this life. So wherever you are in that, how do we begin to step out and do that more fully what God's called us to do? Because we just have a moment. I guarantee you, no one is going to stand before Jesus and go, I wish I spent more time watching TV. No one's going to stand before him and go, man, I wish I would have spent a lot more of my time isolated and alone and not caring for people. It's not going to happen. And so we have this moment that God's given us to glorify him, to make much of him. And so that we would do that, that we would continue to run hard after him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that we are saved by what Christ has done for us. That it's your grace and your mercy in our life. I pray that each one here, that as we come to know and to love you, the fruit of our life would bear witness to what's happened to us through you. That we would see abundant fruit. I pray that you would light a fire in the hearts of myself, of these people, that you would give us opportunities, that you would help us to be a prayerful people that's considering where you're calling us and what it looks like. And then I pray that you would give us the courage and the obedience to follow you wherever that is. That we'd see a marvelous harvest, not just of people coming to faith, but loving and caring for one another and making much of you. We thank you for all that you've done for us. We pray all of it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As we're